would you please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. If you are using a Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's on either page 869 or 993. Revelation chapter 4, we will be reading all of it. As you know, if you've been here in the month of October, you know that we have been going through the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. Sola Fide, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. And today we come to the conclusion in that series as we talk about Soli Dea Gloria. To God alone be the glory. And uh, this passage in Revelation 4 is a wonderful passage that fixes our eyes on the glory of our God. And so let us pay attention to it as we hear God's word this morning. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. And carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal." And round the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is And is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Friends, so ends the reading of God's Word. And what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Oh, our God, would you show us your glory? As Moses asked, show us your glory. And we know that you have shown us your glory in the person of Jesus Christ, your only Son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, everybody, I'm going to ask you a question. And I really want you to answer this question out loud. Now, don't, don't worry. I know that we're all Presbyterian. It's going to be okay. <clears throat> and this is an easy question. You all know the answer, so please sound it out. And here it goes. Redeemer Church, what is man's primary purpose? Man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Excellent. Very good. Man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now I'm going to ask you another question. This time, don't sound it out. This one's a little bit harder, so I just want you to think about this. What is God's primary purpose? What is God's primary purpose? 
Chew on that for just a moment as, as we think through this. So today is Reformation Sunday. It is the day that we celebrate each year, the, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And as you know, that we have this is a special celebration of Reformation Sunday because on Tuesday, October 31st, is the anniversary, the 500th anniversary of the publication of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which is marked as the, the official beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And as you know, if you've been here in the month of October, we have been working through the five solas of the Reformation in commemoration of that as we've preached through God's Word and looked at these these four different solas up to now. So first there was sola scriptura, that is scripture alone. It is by scripture alone that we know who God is, that we know how we ought to live and to glorify God. Then there was sola fide, we are justified by faith alone, faith alone. And it is, this faith is a gift of God that is given to us. And we are not justified, we're not made right with God by the works of the law, by our own obedience, but by faith alone. And then there was sola gratia, by grace alone. And we are saved by grace through faith alone. And this is a gift of God. This is God's grace to us. And we are saved. And then finally, solus Christus. It is by Christ alone. We are saved by grace through faith through Christ, because of Christ, because Christ's perfect life, perfect death, perfect resurrection on our behalf. We are saved in Christ and Christ alone. But the question is, is there, is there some unifying factor that, that, that binds those previous four solas together? Is there some primary purpose that drives these acts of God towards us, this, this work of salvation? And I would argue for us, friends, that the answer to that is yes. And I'll bring us back to our, our, the question that I just asked. What is God's primary purpose? What is, what is his primary purpose for salvation for us? And I would, I would argue, and what I hope we'll see today in Revelation 4, is that from Genesis to Revelation, God clearly and repeatedly declares that he is particularly driven to proclaim and to preserve and to be zealous for his own glory. And so friends, if man's primary purpose is to glorify and to enjoy him forever, to enjoy God forever, I would argue that God's primary purpose is to glorify himself and bring glory to his name forever and ever. And so when we come to this final sola, soli dea gloria, to God alone be the glory, I think what we see is a driving principle that gets to the, the heart of all the work of the glorious and majestic God that we serve. And it must be a controlling principle for everything that we are and everything that we do. So our passage today comes from Revelation chapter 4. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know that it is fairly unique in the, in the canon of Scripture. It is not a story, a narrative story like uh, the Gospels, and it's not a letter like uh, Paul's letters to the various churches. It is what we would call an apocalyptic form of genre, which means that it has strange imagery and symbols that are often difficult to understand. And as such, Revelation has lots of different interpretive approaches to it, and I will just jump to I'll spare you of all those discussion. I'll just jump to what I think that Revelation as a whole uh, speaks to. And I think in the book of Revelation, God, uh, as it were, peels back the curtain 
on our existence, on all reality, to show us this amazing cosmic struggle that is taking place between God and his people and the forces of darkness. And it is a struggle that is ongoing and it's a present reality for us, but we don't see this cosmic reality. But this cosmic reality meets its consummation when Christ comes again and we live in his blessedness forever and ever. And as we look at this passage, I think that this passage particular in in Revelation 4 is supremely and uniquely focused on God's glory. And I think we'll see it in three different ways. Okay, so the first way that we see that God's immense glory is just the glory that he has in and of himself. Okay, so let's take a look. So uh, it starts in verse 1. And after this, I, the Apostle John, looked. Behold, a door standing up open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. The Apostle John beckons us to come along with us as he goes into the heavenly realms to see this vision that he, he sees. And what does he see? And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. He beckons us with us, with him. He says, fix your eyes on what I saw. And what we see is this blinding glory, these these glorious gems. We don't see an individual. We see we're we're blinded by these these glorious gems. And and what are these these gems? Uh, we're, We're blinded. Not in the sense of we can't see, but in that there's this fullness, this, this brightness, this, this, uh, this vision that we can't even comprehend, that is so magnificent and glorious that it's, can, he can only describe it in the terms of gems. And what are these gems? Well, we, we see these gems in various places throughout Scripture, and rather than trying to pick apart what each of them means individually, commentators point out that We see them elsewhere, but collectively they represent God's sovereign majesty and glory because, and we know this because, they appear in places in the Old Testament Scriptures where the divine glory is manifested to His people. And we also see it in Revelation chapter 21 where His glory is again manifested. And so this is an image of the glory and the majesty of our God. And so we are visually overwhelmed by His glory is beyond our comprehension. He is so magnificent. But it's not just visual that we're overwhelmed, but an auditory, a a hearing. Continues in verse 5. He says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. There's this terrifying power of thunder and lightning. Now, kids, some of you may struggle a bit with thunderstorms and lightning uh, when we have our, our magnificent Texas thunderstorms. But this is, this is far beyond that. Far beyond anything that we've ever seen because this is no mere thunderstorm. This is the, John ushers us into the presence of the one to whom all lightning submits. The one from whom the power emanates. And, and you, can, you can sense this this awe, this fear, this reverence that, that uh, John experiences. And it reminds us of the image in Exodus 20 when the Israelites came to the base of Mount Sinai. 
And on the top of the mountain, there was thunder and lightning, which was God's presence manifested on the mountain. And the Israelites were terrified. And they said to Moses, don't let God to speak to us. Don't let him speak to us directly. You speak to God, and then you tell us what he said. Because we are terrified. We are terrified. And that's the, the image that we have here that John, in the presence of the Almighty, this terrifying thunder and lightning. And so we're overcome by the, the sight and the sound. But we're also overcome because he is altogether separate. He is altogether unique. Heaven is his abode. This is where his throne exists. And he has this holiness, this purity, this altogetherness. And he's not just holy in a unique sense from us. He is thrice holy. They're declaring he is holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy. He is pure. And He is eternal in His gloriousness. John, like every other individual that came into the presence of the Almighty, recognized, as we do, His mortality, His finite nature, that He had a beginning and that He faces death at some point. But this is the One who was declared to be who was and is and is to come. The One who lives forever and ever. Who has no beginning. Who has no end. And there's something terrifying in the scope of eternity. And so we're overwhelmed by the presence of the glory of God as we are ushered into that. And, and the response, friends, the response that we must have is that same response that every one of those biblical accounts gives us. In Revelation chapter 1, when John was in the presence of the Almighty, he fell on his face as though dead. Which echoes what Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and he said, Woe is me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. My eyes have seen the Lord. Our God, friends, is glorious and majestic. He is not one to be trifled with. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He is glorious in and of Himself. And that must transform us because this is our God. The One who has approached us and has extended His grace to us and allows us, beckons us into His presence. So He is glorious in and of His very self. That's the first reason. But the second reason is He's glorified not just because of who He is, though that is sufficient, But He is glorious because of what He has done and what He continues to do. First of all, He is is the Creator. Look at verse 11. Look at what these, these elders say to Him. They say, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and praise. Why? For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture is clear that God is the Creator of all things. There is is nothing that has been created that was not created apart from Him. Or that was created apart from Him. And if He is the Creator, if He has created these things by His own will, then all the glory is due Him. We must praise Him because we exist because of His will, because of His goodness, because of His sovereign choice for us. But He's not just the Creator. He is also the sovereign ruler. He is the one who continues to sustain all things. He says that it is by your will 
they existed and were created. He is, he is pictured for us clearly in Revelation 4 as the King of kings, the sovereign king. He is seated on a throne in the center of this image. And around him he has subservient thrones. He is the king. And Revelation says future, in future chapters of, of Revelation, it talks about how these future events are being controlled and orchestrated from this very same throne. This very same throne. It, scripture is clear that it is by the word of His power that all things are sustained. That it's not just a, a, a beginning of creation and then God takes His hands off. No, He continues to sustain and preserve and work out all of His holy will for us. And there's another image of His sovereignty. And this one may be less obvious to you. In verse 6 it says this, and it's talking about the throne, and it says, Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. A sea of glass. Now this is interesting because to the Israelite mind, the sea, the image of the sea was a picture of evil and wickedness and death. And they, they feared the sea. They feared the sea because it was tumultuous. It was chaotic. But here in this image that John gives us, the sea is not tumultuous. It is peaceful. It is like glass. It is like crystal. It is as if our God is saying that yes, there, is, there are forces of wickedness and darkness in the midst of this world, but before me they are nothing. And even in my sovereignty, even these wicked things, they submit to me. When, when, when He says to the storm of the wickedness of this world, peace, be still, there is calm. There is glass before Him. They submit to all of His sovereign will. And friends, that ought to be incredible encouragement to us because we face, we, we witness that that wickedness, those forces of darkness in our life uh, every day. We're in the midst of this world and things do seem chaotic, do seem like we are under attack because often we are. But our God is the one who is sovereignly in control of all these things and can bring peace in the midst of it. And this is glorious. This is, <clears throat> this is glorious, my friends. So he's, he's the creator and he's the sovereign, but he also shows himself to be merciful in the midst of that. He could, he, could, he could create these things and be a capricious ruler, but he's not. He shows himself to be sovereign and good. And, and he shows us this with this uh, odd image uh, in verse 3 where it says that uh, he sees this image of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, kids, we know a story in Scripture that has a rainbow, doesn't it? Don't we? The story of Noah and the ark. And that rainbow was a sign of his covenant with Noah. A sign of his mercy and his goodness. That he would never again wipe out the earth with a flood. And this image of a rainbow, I think uh, John is hearkening back to that image to say, yes, he is the sovereign king, and yet he is merciful he is good. He loves us and is not capricious. He is, he is kind. And His mercy and kindness is uniquely manifested to us in His work of salvation to us. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. This is all to His glory, friends. And all in the person of Christ and to the glory of Christ. It is when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works that we had done, but because of His goodness, because of His love, because of His mercy. God loved us and sent His only Son that when we believe in Him, we would not perish, but have eternal life. And no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But God the Son, Jesus Christ, has made Him known to us. God has revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His being. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as... uh, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's glory made manifest to us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we can behold the face of our God and live. This is His mercy to us. This is how we are are ushered into His presence by the blood of Jesus Christ through His grace and His mercy which He extends to us. We are justified through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola fide, and not by the works of the law. And this is a gift that He gives us because of His grace. To God alone be the glory. We are are saved by His grace alone. Sola gratia. And not from anything that we've done. We have not earned this so that God would receive all the glory. To God alone be the glory. And it is through Christ alone that we are saved. So that in, in Him, Christ might be preeminent in all things and so that He might receive the name that is above every name to the glory of God the Father. To God alone be the glory. And we know this grace and this truth that have been extended to us in Jesus Christ through Scripture alone, through God's own words, so that He might receive the glory through the means that He has given to us. Friends, God is glorified in and through every one of His works. Every act of His creation, His sovereignty, His salvation, all of His works He does for the glory of His gracious name. And so we see His glory in who He is. We see His glory in what He's done. And we see His glory finally in the works of how His creation gives glory to His name. Particularly, when His creation gives praise and glory and worship to Him. Now, you may think it's a bit odd that we ended here rather than beginning there, because so often when we talk about how we ought to live our lives, we talk about um, we need to give God the glory. Even when we talk about our favorite uh, catechism question, what is the man's primary purpose? Man's primary purpose is to glorify God. We, we're thinking ethically. What must I do to glorify God? And that's critical. That's crucial for us. We, we must live every moment uh, living for His glory. But it's also crucial for us to realize, friends, that the only reason we do that is out of response for who God is in His glorious self and what He has done, His glorious acts for His glory's sake. We are merely responding in kind appropriately 
to who He is and what He has done for us. We cannot give God any glory beyond the glory that is already His in the fullness of His existence. And yet we must live every aspect of our life before Him for His glory and His praise. And so that is the appropriate response for us to live every aspect for His glory. And we see this throughout the, the passage here. So it, we see these images, uh, it, it, we, we see various images of how this works. So in verse 2 it says, you know, there's this throne in heaven. And then in verse 4 it says, around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their throne. And then from the throne there came these flashes of lightning, and there were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And then jumping ahead to the second half of verse 6, it says, Around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Okay, so we have these three, these three uh, groups. There are the elders around the throne, there are the seven torches, and then there are the four living creatures. So, so what, what are these things? Uh, what are they? Uh, so the, the, we'll start with what's easy. Uh, the, the seven torches. This is in, in verse, uh, verse 5. There are the seven torches of fire before the throne. And John tells us that these are the sp- seven spirits of God. And if we were to flip back to Revelation chapter 1, John identifies these seven torches with the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So these seven spirits, if you will, are some kind of pers- uh, some visible manifestation of the Spirit of God. The, the number seven, perhaps an image of perfection. Remember, this is symbolic language. And perhaps pointing to the fact that Christ will send His Spirit to the outermost ends of the earth. So those are the seven, seven spirits. But then there's the 24 elders. Now, the, 20, the number 24, I think, tips us off and helps us out because the number 12 is prevalent in Scripture. We have the 12 tribes of Israel. We have the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And commentators are fairly uh, unified that these 12 elders are representing all of the redeemed people of God. The, the, 12, uh, the, 12, the 12 from the, the Old Testament, the, the heads of the tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles representing the, the redeemed of the New Testament. Whether these are intended to be the angels representing these heads or, or the saints themselves Uh, The intent is to represent the entire community of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So then we come to those four living creatures. And this is is a bit odd, uh, to say the least. A strange collection of creatures. A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle in flight. And of course, there are various interpretations of what this means, and you're welcome to read all of them. I'm not going to share all of them. I'm going to share two, because I think they're related. The first is that this is a representation, a, uh, it's, it's a picture of all of the created order, all of God's creation, that this lion, this ox, this man, this eagle are, are essentially heads of the various aspects of creation. 
as if this is a representation of all the things that God has created. So that's one. But the, the second, uh, which I think is also uh, intriguing, is that this is an image of the perfect and true community of God's people. Now, how do we, how do we get there? Okay, so in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 2, God lays out for the people of Israel, uh, when, they are, when they are camping as the 12 tribes, he told them that you are to camp in particular order. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's throne on earth, was in the center, and there were four encampments around the throne. Kids, picture it if you will. There were three tribes camped on the east, three on the south, three on the west, and three on the north. Okay, so they're all camped with the Levites and the Ark of the Covenant in the center. And Numbers 2 says this. He says, the, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard, think of a flag, with the banners of their father's houses. And they should camp in this way, and then he, he lays it out. Now, Israelite interpretation of this passage actually gave a little bit more color to what was on those banners, what was on those standards. And what they said, and this was before John's revelation, what they said was that each of those standards had the colors of those tribes, the colors that were on the high priest's uh, vestments, and it also had an insignia. And the insignia of one of them was a lion, the insignia of the other was a stag, which was later changed to an ox, the other one had a man, and the other one had a serpent, and was later changed to an eagle. So a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle, around the throne in the presence of God. And so there are commentators who believe that this image that John gives us harkens back to this arrangement of God's people around the throne of God as they wandered in the wilderness. And a later Jewish interpretation also said that that organization that God gave in Numbers 2 was to point ahead to the guardian angels of God's people worshiping around the throne of God. Now, accept it if you will. Uh, throw it out if you don't like it, but I think the picture is beautiful if it is accurate because it is a picture that these four creatures, along with these 12 elders, are representing the totality of God's people, worshiping around the throne of grace. And it's these, these four creatures that are leading the worship. And what is it that they're doing? They're, they're full of ceaseless Worship in the presence of God. As it says in verse 8, it says, Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So are these four elders all of creation, or is it the perfect community of, of God's people worshiping in his presence? I would argue it's potentially both. God created all things for his glory. All of his creation is intended to give glory and praise to his name. And yet, the creation groans now as it's subjected to futility because of the fall. 
And yet, where does God see that fullness of worship that He deserves now? It is in the context, friends, of worship by the people of God. And so, what we worship, when we worship, when we gather together as the saints in God's presence, we are getting a foretaste of the eternal blessedness that we will have when the curse is lifted and all creation praises and glorifies our God forever and ever as it was intended to be from the very beginning. And so friends, so friends, do you see the importance? Do you see the, the, the blessedness of what we have? When we gather together as the saints, we're not just a, a, a group of people that are coming together to sing songs. We are, we, are, we are issued into the presence of the Almighty God to praise Him for His glorious self, His glorious works, to, to get a foretaste of the blessedness of, of all eternity, to enjoy Him and to glorify Him now as a foretaste of what we will do for all eternity. And friends, I think Psalm 96 Psalm 96 gives us this glorious picture of what we are called to do and what this response that we must have because of God's goodness. And I'm, I'm going to close with this. Psalm 96 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Friends, let that be our song. Individually, may we say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. May we say, praise the Lord, all you His people. Let us Praise Him for His glorious and majestic self. Let us praise Him for His marvelous deeds. Soli Dea Gloria, my friends. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, You are glorious and majestic and marvelous. And we praise You. Thank You for being our God and allowing us to be Your people. Would You allow us, Your redeemed people, to bless Your holy name, to bring honor to Your name, this day and forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.